uh, the Oxford Union under intense pressure to cancel an invitation to the writer Kathleen Stock because of what she said and written. And the confusion and controversy uh, on this subject uh, maybe makes us feel timid and uncertain about our gender differences. Maybe it feels safer to play down our differences and to emphasise our sameness for fear of being accused of something like toxic masculinity or uh, of being a turf or something else. By contrast, I think today's teaching encourages us to be proudly and unashamedly male or female. I've summarised it like this. Men and women should visibly display their gender. I think that gets towards the heart of what um, the Apostle Paul is saying here. One of the ways that gender difference was displayed in the first century in Eastern Mediterranean region, it seems, was by men uncovering their heads to pray and women covering their heads to pray. Just look down at verse 4 of our Bible passage that Jenny just read. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. Now we're going to have to get into the argument of that passage um, in more detail. But a lot of Paul's reasoning depends on the principles that we find right back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So we're going to go there first. Um, where we see that men and women should visibly display their gender because God made us male and female in his image. Let me just read what Genesis chapter 1 says. God said, Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then skip to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Now this is a basic building block of what it means to be human. Some people say that sex is assigned at birth. But that's simply scientifically not true. From the moment of conception, an embryo has either XX or XY chromosomes. And in a 20-week scan, you usually find out whether your baby is a boy or a girl. There are a tiny number of people who are intersex, that is, they have an unusual pattern of chromosomes. Some people have characteristics of both male and female bodies, but that's a fraction of 1% of the population. For the overwhelming majority of people, one of the most basic things you can say about a human being is that they're male or female. And the Bible says that was God's good intention right from the beginning. Now that original creation pattern lends dignity and equality and stability to both men and women. Pre-Christian cultures have tended to look at men and women and say that because men are typically um, stronger and therefore dominant, men must be better. I hope you can see that okay, it's quite small, isn't it? But the Bible says, no, 
The Bible says men and women are created equal in the sight of God, and yet they're distinct. They have what we call complementary roles. You need both of them, really, functioning properly, fully to see the glorious image of God. And today, to complete the picture, in our post-Christian Western culture, because people tend to cut the Creator God out of it, uh, they assume that men and women being equal means that men and women must be the same, or even that men and women are interchangeable, or recently people have been saying that we're all somewhere on a spectrum of gender fluidity. I hope you can see why I say that the Christian view there in the middle brings dignity and equality and stability to men and women. If we're all on a spectrum of gender fluidity, then we become our own creators. But we have no stable or objective relationship with God or with one another or ultimately even with ourselves. I've put there on the handouts uh, the website address for Living Out, um, which would be a great place to explore those questions of gender identity further. Let's come back now to 1 Corinthians. When people abandon male and female distinctions today, whether that's androgyny or cross-dressing or transgender, uh, they might not be Christian at all, but it seems that maybe in first century Corinth there were people who were super spiritual. <coughs> and that might have been what led to them thinking they no longer needed to observe um, social conventions for men and women. So maybe particularly women in the early church might have been tempted to throw off their traditional head coverings to be free to pray just like men. But as we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians, for the Christian, freedom isn't the ultimate value. In chapters 5 and 6, we saw that our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies sexually matters. Paul said there, I have the right to do anything. I'm free to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. In chapters 8 to 10, Robin's shown us these last few weeks that what we do with our bodies in terms of what we eat or drink matters. We get that same statement about freedom at the top of um, the page. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Now, in chapter 11, having covered how we should limit our freedoms with reference to sex, and to food, Paul turns now to how our bodies are used positively with respect to our gender, and then next week, of what we eat in worship at the Lord's Supper. We mustn't be super spiritual and think that our bodies and what we do with them don't matter. And so Paul says we must visibly display our gender, particularly because men and women embody different gospel truths. Men and women embody different gospel truths. This seems to be what Paul's saying in this passage, and this is where it gets particularly controversial to 21st century Western ears. The foundation for his teaching comes in verse 3. He says, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 
What he seems to be saying is this, men, especially, embody Christ's leadership. Now let me say straight away, we've seen already in Genesis, men and women are equal in the image of God. But it seems that men have a particular role of embodying the leadership of Christ. And we can see that especially in verse 7. Have a look there. It says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Now in Bible imagery, the parts of the body have symbolic significance. The head, which is where you put a crown, is a symbol of leadership. And when someone has authority over uh, someone or something, the Bible speaks about putting it under their feet. You might think about Ruth sleeping at Boaz's feet, or the woman anointing Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. It's hard for us to guess at exactly what Paul is saying here. It might be that there's a contrast in the culture with pagan men who cover their heads to pray, but it seems in our passage that an uncovered head was a sign of leadership, a model of Christ's leadership in the world. And that fits with what other parts of the Bible say about men modelling Christ's headship in marriage and in the church. I've put a couple of other Bible references on the sheet. Um, and we can come across this again in chapter 14. There might also be there a sense of kind of unimpeded relationship with God the Father, who is the head of Christ. Again, let me say very clearly that both men and women are made in the image of God. As Christians, we both have full and free access to God, but it seems that men have a particular role of modelling that specific aspect of Christian identity, that is Christ's leadership. And therefore, our passage seems to suggest that women especially embody being under authority. And again, let me emphasize that the Bible says everyone is under authority. That is, under the leadership of Jesus, as well as under the leadership of our parents as we grow up, and under the authority of the state, and so on. And men and women are equal in value under God. But it seems that women have a particular role in modelling what it looks like to be under authority. Those Bible verses about the leadership of men in marriage and in church also cover the distinctive role of women. And what women wear on their heads somehow symbolises that. Again, it's possible that there are other kind of cultural ideas of the day connected with it, um, such as pagan worship, women being seductive in pagan temple worship and so on. It might relate specifically to wives. Uh, the word for woman here can also be used to refer specifically to wives. But the clearest evidence in the passage is that somehow women themselves um, embody this kind of um, being under authority. We saw that in um, verse 7, that a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Well, the counterpart comes in verse 10. Can you see in verse 10? A woman ought to have authority over her own head. What does that phrase, authority over, or it might be authority on her head, mean? I think given the context, 
that is talking about men being told to uncover their heads and women to cover their heads, it must mean that women should have some sort of indication that they are under authority. Now let's just stand back and try and put all of that together. I'm suggesting that Paul is saying that each of them, men and women, embody and symbolise distinct biblical truths that actually apply to all Christians, whether male or female. Men especially embody Christ's leadership and image, and women especially embody the fact that we're all under authority. So men can look at women in their role and their visible difference in worship, and they can say, they embody something that's true of me as well. We are under authority. And women can look at men in their role and visible difference in worship, and they can say, they embody something that's true for me too. We are the image of Christ and have access to God. But we can't visibly embody both at the same time. You can't both have your head covered and uncovered at the same time. And so God has chosen men to model one and women to be the example of the other. Both are equal and dignified in their gender roles. And we need to see both laid out in order fully to see the image of God as he intended it. Now there's lots more in this passage that we don't have time to look at in detail this morning. Let me just tell you the outline to help you as you go back over it um, this week. The first paragraph, verses 2 to 6, sets up the principle. In verses 7 to 12, Paul makes his case particularly from creation. He says that man was created prior to woman, and woman was created to support man in his role of filling the earth and subduing it. Even so, there's a reminder there in verses 11 and 12 of equality. Men and women are dependent on each other. And then in verses 13 to 16, Paul makes his case from the cultural expectations of the time and what seems proper. Here it's less about head coverings and more about the length of your hair. He says it's not right in that culture for a man to have long hair, but long hair on a woman is her glory. That just helps to confirm, by the way, that the aim isn't to squash a woman's femininity, but instead to celebrate it. In some religions, women have to cover themselves up completely, as if women are a problem and embarrassment. But the principle here is that a woman should proudly display the fact that she's a woman. Not provocatively, but still unashamedly. Being a, a woman or a man is a wonderful thing. And that helps us, I think, work out how all this applies today. It's taken a while, but I think it's important to work through those principles. Some people read this Bible passage and say that we should do exactly what it says. Women should cover their heads to pray, men should uncover their heads to pray. And I used to be in a prayer group with someone who believed exactly that. When we began to turn to pray, she would scramble her handbag and get out of her scarf to put on. Now, I think we need to respect uh, people taking the scriptures seriously, but I'm not sure it's as simple as that. I don't think people in our culture today understand heads covered or uncovered 
as having the same significance as they did for the people Paul was writing to in the first century. And actually, he appeals to the culture of the time, doesn't he? Did you notice that? As Jenny read in verse 14, he says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Well, I think we would say no. Uh, the very nature of things doesn't tell us that. It's not obvious to most people today. And in fact, elsewhere in the Bible, Paul referred to this when, uh, at the beginning of the service. Elsewhere in the Bible, we find that for Samson and Absalom, for example, long hair was a sign of masculine virility and strength. There are even hints in the book of Acts that Paul himself sometimes had longer hair. So we've got to try to apply the biblical principle and distinguish it from the cultural specifics. If I'm right, the principle here is that men and women should visibly display their gender. That's certainly done in the roles we play in marriage and in church. Other Bible passages uh, make that explicit. We can look at them another day. Visibly displaying our gender can be done as well in the clothes that we wear. Deuteronomy says a woman must not wear a man's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. Now again, that's culturally defined. What's understood as men's clothing or women's clothing has changed over time. That means different things to different cultures in the world. But I think there's still something particular about the head. Remember that our head symbolizes whether we have authority or whether we're under authority. And so perhaps one application of this passage is, is that it should be clear just by looking at someone's head whether they're a man or a woman. That's not so much these days, I don't think, in terms of length of hair. So don't worry, I'm not going to stand at the door with a ruler <laughs> for everyone on the way out. Even so, there are still some hairstyles that are typically masculine or typically feminine. Can we proudly and unashamedly indicate whether we're male or female by how we present ourselves to the world, and especially in a worship gathering? And I think for those of us who are parents, uh, it has implications for how we bring up our children. I'm not suggesting that we should rigidly uh, conform to gender stereotypes, but I think teaching like today's suggests that it's good to dress babies and younger children and to cut their hair so that we can see whether they're a boy or a girl. We want them to grow up always knowing I'm a boy or I'm a girl. And whichever it is, that's a wonderful, God-given, glorious thing. Two more things I want to say before we close first. This is one of those Bible passages where we might not fully agree. And that's okay. Paul explicitly describes it in verse 2 as a matter of traditions passed on and the details of what he's saying and how it applies are a bit obscure to us today. And you might think, I've got completely the wrong end of the stick. I'm not going to judge anyone on this or try to throw you out of St. Anne's if you take a different view and I hope you're not going to want to denounce me or leave St. Anne's over it either. But even so, there's clearly something important going on Paul says in verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So we can't just ignore it altogether. Second thing I want to say is that I'm sure there'll be some people who find this kind of teaching is 
especially personal and difficult. Gender dysphoria is real and is painful. And if you think you've been born into the wrong body, then please don't be embarrassed to ask for help and support. I hope you would find St Anne's a safe and loving place to explore these things. I would just gently say that as with any psychological condition, the answer is not to try to change your body to match your feelings, but try to unpick and come to terms with your feelings and come to terms with the physical reality of your body. For all of us, will you visibly and proudly display your gender, whether it's male or female? Our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies matters. And God made us male and female in his image. Being a man or a woman is a very good thing. Let's celebrate our distinctiveness as male and female and together display gospel truths in our different and complementary ways. I'm going to read from Genesis 1 again as we close. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Our Father God, we thank you that whilst there are lots of details that we might not understand, thank you that this one thing is clear, that you made us male or female, and that that is a good and wonderful thing. We pray, dear Lord God, that you give us the grace and the confidence visibly to live out our own gender identity. Pray particularly, Father, for those who are experiencing pain or confusion in that whole area. We ask, Father, that we would be a safe and loving community in which to explore these things. Father, we ask that when we look at one another, when the watching world looks at us as Christians, we pray, our Father, that we would fulfill that wonderful model of men and women in your image, displaying what it looks like to be the people of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.